You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so here we are. We've been working left to right through the Gospel Account of John for about 15 to 18 months now at Mercy's Door. And so we've just slowly walked through all the events leading up to this text here. We have seen a Jesus who has been beaten, mocked, scorned, crucified, killed. We saw a spear pierced through his side. We saw him pour out blood and water. We saw the Son of God declare, it is finished. And we saw him dead, dead. We saw him taken off the cross and carried to a tomb cut from the rock, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and we saw the stone rolled over that tomb, and then we saw it go quiet. And last week, we spent significant time talking about what was happening on the earth and what was happening underneath the earth as we declared that Jesus Christ was putting death to death by his own death. And here we pick up in this morning's passage with his disciples wandering back to the tomb to mourn. If you were with Mercy's Door when we were preaching the Lazarus account, the death of Lazarus, then you started to see kind of what the Jewish mourning ritual was like. You would go back and forth to the tomb, from to the tomb to your home, from your home to the tomb, back and forth in many cases for weeks. You, you would go to the tomb to weep, and then you would return to your home. And that's what's happening here. We see Mary Magdalene go to the tomb to cry to be near the body of her dead Lord. But when she gets there, she sees that the stone is rolled away and that the body is missing. And so she runs and she gets Peter and John and she tells them they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. This is her only logical conclusion is somebody's removed the body. And this was a borrowed tomb. We preached that last week. This was Joseph's tomb. So maybe Joseph moved the body. Maybe they found a a different spot for him. Maybe the soldiers moved the body. Maybe somebody took the body. I don't know what happened, but the body is not there. And I just wanted to go be near the body that I might mourn. And now I don't even know where his body lay. This is like another punch in the face for the disciples who were already feeling hopeless. They had scattered. Very few were even there to see him crucified because they were so scared at his betrayal. And here we just don't even know where his body lay, that we can mourn near it, that we can cry near it. And so Peter and John accompany Mary and other women back to the tomb. And it says this, that when John outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He was too scared to go in. He peeked, but he wouldn't enter. Peter walks right in, verse 6, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then John goes in, and, and, and he saw, and it says that he believed. We'll talk about that phrase in a second. Nothing in the scriptures is there on accident. So something that stood out to me and something I'd like to stand out to you in this account is that Peter remarks that the face shroud had been removed and folded up and placed in a a different spot than the body shroud, than than the linen cloths. Something stood out to Peter even in this moment about the orderliness of the contents of the tomb. That whatever happened here didn't happen in a rush that there was 
care given to folding up this face shroud and placing it in a place by itself while the linen cloths remained on the bed where the body had lay. And this called to mind a really beautiful portrait for me as I pictured, and I want you to picture it with me, the dead and decaying body of Christ steeped in what we preached last week was $200,000 worth of myrrh and aloe and spices. Eyes opening, three days later, sitting up in the tomb in a glorified body, removing the face shroud, folding it up nicely, setting it aside, and strolling out of the tomb. Peter does not yet understand that this is the nature by which this face shroud came to be folded up nicely and set off to the side, but the grace with which our Lord re-entered the earth is just marvelous to me, and I thought I'd hold out that tidbit to you. But then it says that when John entered that he saw and believed. We might be tempted to think that we mean that he saw and believed that Jesus had resurrected like he said, but then the rest of the sentence takes that away from us. It says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So it was upon seeing with his own eyes entering and seeing the body missing that he believed the account of Mary that they had taken Jesus's body and moved it somewhere else. This is what he believed. He's not here. He's not here. And as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, then the disciples went back to their homes. And this sentence is the sentence I want to preach to you all this morning. That when they looked and saw that the tomb was empty, their response was to go back to their homes because they did not yet understand that Jesus must rise from the dead. Listen, the empty tomb is not the same thing as the risen Christ. An empty tomb is not the same thing as the risen Christ. An empty tomb brought them into further despair such that all they could do is say, we'll go back home to mourn. We'll return to our homes. There's nothing here to mourn. But the risen Christ ends the morning all together and brings you instead to joyful celebration. And I pray that we are going to find our way into that celebration as we behold the risen Christ this morning, not merely an empty tomb. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 4, Paul wrote this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, the disciples understood this, that he died, that he was buried, they understood this, but then this, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, so you can go ask them, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says, I delivered to you as first importance that Christ died for us, was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to a great cloud of witnesses, not only the disciples, but another 500. 
In Acts 1.3, we read that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The bodily resurrection of Jesus, that he presented himself to us bodily, that he allowed us to touch him, to talk to him, to see him. This is central to everything that we believe in the Christian faith. Everything hinges on a resurrected Jesus. Verse 14 of that same passage in 1 Corinthians says this, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verse 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Verse 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? And that's what we've gathered here this morning to discuss. You know, in that uh, same book of Acts, a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 5, we read a testimony about a guy named Theodos. It says, before these days, the days of Christ, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so up to this point in our story, we see a Jesus who looks a lot like Theodos and Judas the Galilean. He drew a following, and then he perished and his following came to nothing. They scattered. And this would be little, there's nothing more to talk about unless there's a resurrection. Jesus rising is what changes him, changes his ministry, his mission, and his following from all the other missions and followings that have ever been on the face of the earth. It's our risen Messiah, our risen Lord that we worship. And as yet, verse 9, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You know, I think that as Christians, we are pretty good at talking about why Jesus had to die. There are books written on this. There are volumes written on this. Why did Jesus need to die? Why did Jesus have to be crucified and so forth? But I don't know that we spend enough time talking about why did Jesus have to rise? Why did Jesus have to rise? He, it's that the scripture says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. He must. Why must our Messiah rise? Well, there are many reasons. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 26, Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Verse 44, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It must be so. In Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not 
possible for him to be held by it. He must raise. He must rise. Why? I'll give you five reasons this morning. One, Jesus Christ, Christ must rise from the dead. Jesus Christ, that was fun. Jesus Christ must fall or rise from the dead to fulfill the promises of God to mankind. In order that God may not be made a liar, Jesus Christ must raise from the dead. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole of Scripture, the law and the prophets and the Psalms testify to one central truth, that there is a king from the line of David who will reign eternally, spiritually, over a people, that he will be found righteous in the sight of God. This eternal reign was the hope of the ancient people, and it is our hope today that we have a Lord who will stand in for us eternally, a perfect, spotless one a king who will reign forever. If Jesus Christ goes dead and stays dead, then he makes God a liar, or he is not the Messiah. He must live in order to reign eternally in righteousness with you and I. Number two, he must rise in order to vindicate his sinless life. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that the claim of Jesus was that he was without sin. He says, if any of you find fault with me, tell me. His claim was to be sinless, and we needed him to be sinless, didn't we? Because the great offer of Christianity, and if you are not a Christian, this is what I need you to hear. This is the extension of God to be received by faith in his son, Jesus Christ is that he would take your sin, all of your failure to obey the commands of God and to honor him with all of the honor and glory that he is due, that he would take that upon himself at the cross and that he would put it to death in the grave and that he would rise from the grave and leave those things behind so that they stay dead while he rises victorious and in its place that he would impute to you or give to you his perfect righteousness so that your account before God when you stand before the judgment seat is that the deeds of Christ would be read over you because it's his record and not yours that you go before him holding in your hand. But if Jesus Christ did not live a sinless life, then this is no good promise. He cannot make good on this offer. You need a a perfectly spotless record, and Jesus claims to be able to give that to you. But was he sinless? He must rise in order to vindicate his sinless life, to certify and prove that he was, in fact, sinless. I take this from not only this Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where we read that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And I take it also from Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. I'll read it to you quickly. See to it, Colossians 2.13, Paul writing, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There is no higher statement of perfection ever made about a person. The, full, the fullness of deity 
dwells bodily in him. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made with uh, made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Listen close. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, listen close. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our Lord Jesus Christ, by rising victorious from death, what he was saying is, you have no hold on me. You can't keep me. You have no ability to hold me. Your hook has no barb, Satan. There is no charge for you to bring against me. I go willfully and willfully only into this place, and I walk out when I please. This is testified, the sinlessness and perfection, the fullness of the deity of Christ is professed only by his resurrection. If death could keep him, if death could bind him, then he is not who he said. But if there is no one that can hold Christ, then he is the fullness of deity, isn't he? 1 Timothy 3.16, let me read this little piece for you. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. He was sinless. He is perfect. And this is huge because that is what you need to put your faith in one who has no ability to offer you a perfect record of righteousness is to put your faith in somebody who cannot save you. You need perfection if you are going to stand before the judgment seat of God, and Christ alone makes the claim to be able to make you spotless by his own spotless life, and his resurrection testifies to what we see five times. It was, Luke was obsessed with this idea in his, in his passion account. He said five times, this man was innocent. This man, there was no guilt found in him. This man was innocent. There was no guilt found in him. And his resurrection from the dead testifies that it was true. Three, Jesus must rise from the dead to prove that his death worked. To prove that it worked. In John 19.30, as he breathed his last, Jesus said, It is finished. But if he then breathes his last and goes and stays dead, how do we know? How can we be certain that his death was effective to put our sin and death to death if it was powerful enough to kill him and keep him dead? If he stays dead, we have no confidence and are to be pitied among all men. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul wrote again, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Pause. He's delivered up for our trespasses. And so we glory in the cross, church, don't we? We glory in the cross. We see him up there and we're like, this is for me. 
He is dying for my transgressions, for my sins. But when he's buried and he takes those into the tomb with him, the only way that I can know that that death was sufficient is if it can't hold him. And so Paul finishes this doctrine and this sentence with the back half of his sentence. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. There is no justification before God without the resurrection. He must rise. When you stand before God and he declares you righteous, it will be on the merits of the one standing beside him, the one who lives, the one who says, I got that one covered. You see? This was not like a soldier jumping on a grenade, like we talked about. We're not talking about a Jesus who laid down his life in order that you could live, but he stays dead in order that you can join him in death later. We're talking about a Jesus who died for you in order that you might not die and rose for you in order that you might live. Fourthly, Jesus must rise to unite us to himself by faith. Listen, the whole crux of Christianity, the whole reason why we say it's not by works but by faith that we will inherit eternal life is that by faith we are united with the one Lord Jesus Christ. Our union with Christ is the central doctrine of Christianity that you and he are made one by faith, baptized in the Holy Spirit so that he indwells you, Holy Spirit producing faith in order that by that faith you would be united with the one risen Christ. What good is it at all, church, for you to be united to a dead man? The whole point of our hope is that we would escape our death, and if we are united to the dead, then we have no hope at all but to be united to he who lives. Well, this is everything. Revelation chapter 1, 17 and 18, John is given a vision into heaven, and he sees Jesus, and it says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Amen? When you fall on your face as one dead before Christ, he puts his right hand upon you and lifts your chin and says, Behold, I died, but I live forevermore. Stand, rise, live forevermore with me. And lastly, Jesus Christ had to rise to be our king and our delight. Listen. In this image that we paint sometimes of the soldier who jumps on the grenade, he dies in order that we might continue to live, but he's gone? Well, that's no salvation at all. To continue to live absent the Savior is, the, is not the fullness of the salvation that we were promised. We were promised that the deep need that we have, the deep soul need that we have, the very thing that we were created for, that we would dwell bodily with our maker, with our creator, with our triune God, that we would walk face to face and reign in eternity in the kingdom with our Messiah, with the Christ. This is the promise. 
And so to be welcomed into golden paved roads and into a room in the Father's house and all that, but absent the Son, absent the Savior, absent the Christ, is to be absent the thing you were made for. To dwell bodily forever in a place absent your Lord is no salvation at all. That is not what we were promised. He needed to rise to be our king and our delight. There is no final good news if our pearl of great price is dead. We were made for him. We were made for him. And so, church, given that Christ had to rise to fulfill the promises of God, to prove his sinlessness that, he might have, that we might have confidence when he offers it to us, to prove that his death was effective to put our death to death, to unite us to himself, the living God, and to be our king forever. When we say he is risen, he is risen indeed, we are declaring the highest truth of the Christian life. We don't merely behold an empty tomb, we behold our risen Christ. He has gone before us, the firstborn of all creation, went first into death and was the first to come from death that we might join him in eternal life. This is our deepest hope. And if you do not know this hope, if you're new here this morning, if you're the family member of somebody who knows this Lord, but this Lord is foreign to you, I want you to know today could be the day of salvation for you. Today can be the day that you behold the risen Messiah for the first time. Confess your sin to him and receive his payment for the penalty of your sin and have his perfect righteous life applied to you, the eternal life that he dwells in bodily today. I invite you, if that is you, to talk to me at any point after service today, and I would love to work through all of that with you. But otherwise, if this is your Lord, we must learn to behold him and his risen state. We must learn to worship the God who lives, the God who reigns, the God who evermore will be. It changes everything about how you engage this life. It's my only application for you today. If he died for you, was buried for you, and rose for you, then there is an eternity ahead of you, which means everything you do in this life is of eternal consequence. You're not merely waiting out this life in order that you can enter into the next one. This life that you are living now will endure beyond the grave. All that you do in this life will count and matter in the kingdom economy of God. I used to say to my wife, I still say it when, it when it occurs to me, that when my theology changed about heaven, and I, I used to think, I I, maybe nobody else has ever thought this, I, I, had, I had really bad theology sometimes, but I used to think that in heaven that we wouldn't really know one another, we wouldn't remember this life, that how could we possibly be fully spared from all of the pain and suffering of this life if we have to remember it kind of thing. So I used to like think that we get like that men in black thing, where you just kind of like forget it all. And then, uh, and then you enter into the kingdom to start a new life, you know, like life 2.0 kind of thing. But eternity is something that you exist in now. You are an eternal being. Your soul is eternal. You will dwell bodily and eternally in either heaven or hell. And this will all be part of the story. All of it. And what I say to my wife, getting back to what I was trying to say, what I say to my wife is, I'm looking forward to those days in heaven where we'll look backwards to those days when we walked by faith and not by sight, and we'll say, 
I knew it. Or remember when we doubted? Or remember how he promised? Look, it, 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 it's true. We will worship. Our, our, our worship will be perfected on account of the lives that we live here. It will change the way that we behold the risen Christ when we see him face to face. This life matters, but this life is not all there is. And that should functionally change the way that we walk through each and every day. And so let's pray to that end now. Let's worship our King through song. And then after that, we will, um, we're going to go have an Easter egg hunt. If we've got teenagers in the room uh, who are part of Mercy's Door, I want to invite you to go and hide some Easter eggs. You can meet Miss Sandy um, out, at the, out at the front desk, and she will give you instructions. And then we're going to invite the littles from upstairs to come down and do that in a little bit. And while they're working on that, let's, let's uh, pray, and we'll sing and, and take communion. Father God, Thank you for rising for us. Thank you for sending a Messiah who didn't stay dead. Thank you for the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have an eternal advocate. Thank you that he will make his enemies his footstool, that he will reign over all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, that his is the name that is the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, God, for sending a Savior. Thank you for an empty tomb. Thank you for the risen Christ. Thank you for ransoming us. Lord, with hearts of gratitude, we call out to you and we say, God, you are so good. Father God, I pray for the downcast soul in this room. The one who is afflicted by their sin. The one who is wounded by their sin. The one who looks at their iniquity and their transgression and concludes that surely, surely, the favor of God cannot be upon them. The one who smells the stench of death and new life seems so unreachable, so out of reach. I pray for the one in this room whose soul is downcast because they've concluded rightly that I cannot stand before my creator, God, on my own merit, that my account is not good enough. I pray, Lord, that from this place, from this confession of unworthiness before you, that you would lift the eyes of the downtrodden saint and you would say, Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. That for those who belong to you, God, that you would encourage them that Jesus took their guilt, their shame, their condemnation, all of their sin, and he took it into the grave with him and he rose victorious without it. Yes, God, our sins are wicked and our sins need payment, but we've received it. 
payment in full by the atoning blood of Christ. Let your church rejoice in that again today. And for those who are only halfway there, who are ready to confess that they're not enough, but who have not placed their faith in the one who is, may today be that day for them. May they repent and turn to Christ alone for their righteousness before you. May they receive this perfect, everlasting life that we have enjoyed. And for those who aren't even halfway there, but who believe that they have a right to stand before you, who believe that their deeds are good enough, who believe that, that I can stand before the throne of God and he's going to grade me on a curve, he's going to compare me to Hitler, and he's going to say, good enough that you would show them that even the slightest sin against holy God is worthy of eternal damnation. That they need an advocate, that they need one to stand in for them, and that you have sent that need. Let them place their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. Thank you, Lord, for the risen Christ. May he be our hope. Amen.